Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Continuing in our series on the book of Romans, Lifestyle of the Gospel, Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, The Debt of Love. So let's turn in our Bibles to Romans 13, 8 to 10, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Some time ago, a man named David Roper wrote a poem entitled Paul's Girl. It goes like this. Paul's girl is rich and haughty. My girl is poor as clay. Paul's girl is young and pretty. My girl looks like a bale of hay. Paul's girl is smart and clever. My girl is dumb but good. But would I trade my girl for Paul's? You bet your life I would. (laughs) As clever and as sad as that poem is, it does reflect an attitude we should see in all of our hearts. So many of us wish the people around us were not exactly as they are. You know, perhaps your wife should be prettier or your husband wealthier. Perhaps your kids are brats and your neighbors are messy. Perhaps your friends are losers and your church a little less than impressive. And maybe you're thinking, wouldn't it be nice to trade all these people in for a better set, like Paul's girl? You know, we live in a world of throwaway relationships. A recent phone ad tells customers to love their phone, and if they don't, trade it in for one they can love. The average Canadian moves every four years. New homes, new neighbors, new jobs, new friends. We live in large cities and how easy it is to avoid those people with whom we don't get along. Add to that our divorce laws so that it's always possible to trade him or her in for a better model. Everything in our culture, including many unintended consequences from good things, militates against the lifestyle of the gospel. What's lacking in our lives is love. As Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. We've been talking about the lifestyle of the gospel, and we know that love is the glue that holds all things together. In chapter 12, Paul spoke of love for God, and he spoke of love for brother. Eventually, he would speak about love for enemies. Love is at the heart of the Christian lifestyle. Today, we're going to be looking at just three verses. I'm reading Romans chapter 13, verses 8 to 10. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, You shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are assumed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. You know, at the outset, Paul begins by engaging in the common problem of indebtedness. And in the Bible, it's clear. Proverbs 22, verse 7 says, The borrower is the slave of the lender. Now, to be clear, the Bible never forbids borrowing. You know, for instance, in Exodus 22, it places rules around borrowing, which includes the the condemnation against charging usurious interest. But nonetheless, provision is made for people to borrow money. And Deuteronomy 15, 17 to 9 even goes so far as to say that the borrower is not to refuse a loan to someone because the year of Jubilee, the year of canceling debts is near. So borrowing is a part of the Old Testament culture. It's also true in the New Testament. In Matthew 5, 42, Jesus encouraged those of us who have to lend to those who want to borrow from you. 
Now, in our culture, very few of us will ever get into a house or a condo or an apartment without incurring debt. Also, businesses could not survive without borrowing and calling for investments. I think we must, however, notice that when it comes to borrowing, the Bible strongly advises against borrowing money for things that are not necessities, which in our culture could include things like borrowing for vacations or borrowing for Christmas presents or for some other luxury. I mean, the sad reality in our culture is that many people borrow to the maximum simply because they can't imagine making sacrifices. So whenever the economy goes sour, bankruptcies go up. People can't pay back their loans. But what does all of this mean to believers? Well, one, we should resist leading a money-centered life. And two, we should learn to become tithers and givers. And three, when borrowing money, we borrow with the greatest of care, knowing that we have an obligation before God to pay it all off. That includes our mortgages and car loans and credit card debts and education debts and so forth. Believers are called upon to realize that the way in which we handle money and save money and spend money and give money, it's all a part of our spiritual relationship with God. And so we borrow wisely, knowing that money is a spiritual thing. It's, it's not to be spent frivolously. It is intended to be invested wisely. We must also know that we are called upon to repay every cent of that which we owe with interest. But in reality, verse 8 is not about the Christian use of money. The money portion of verse 8 is based on an imagery of borrowing. It's to serve us as a model for a completely different area of life. Verse 8 begins by saying, Oh, no one anything except to love each other. Now, here's what it's saying. First, just like the financial realm where I am required to repay my loans, so it is also true in the relational realm. I am required to repay my loans. So I ask, well, who am I relationally indebted to? And the answer in verse 8, it says, to each other. Well, here's the question. Who are these each others? Well, the answer, according to verse 9, is that these each others are my neighbors. And the question is, and who is my neighbor? Aha, here we need to listen to Jesus. Because in verse 9, Paul is actually quoting the Old Testament, and he's quoting Jesus, and that comes directly from Luke chapter 10. Remember in Luke 10, Jesus was saying that we should love our neighbors as ourselves, and a lawyer stood up who was feeling most uncomfortable by all this talk. And so he asks, and just, who is my neighbor? And you remember what Jesus said. He told the story of a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho who was, who was mugged and beaten and robbed. And he's lying bleeding and left unattended and dying beside the road, and, and people are passing by. And some very spiritual people are passing by, and no one is helping this poor chap. And by the end of the story, a Samaritan came by, and he not only helped, but he, but he paid the man's bills. And that, says Jesus, is the answer to the lawyer's question. Who is my neighbor? Well, my neighbor is anyone who is in need and who comes into my pathway. So now I go back to verse 8, and here I find out that I have a debt to this neighbor that I need to repay. Now, I don't know about you, but that kind of thing really bugs me because I don't like to think that I have a debt to my neighbor. I would rather feel that I have an opportunity to serve my neighbor, but, but indebted. And after I, I admit that I'm bugged by that idea, that I'm indebted to him or her, 
I find myself protesting and saying, well, how did it come to be that I incurred a debt to him or her? Well, in Romans 1 verse 14, Paul is speaking about his missionary work, and that's in evangelizing and planting churches. And and Paul makes the following statement, and I quote him here. He says, I am under obligation, note the words under obligation, both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. And Paul is saying, God has obligated me to preach the gospel to as many Gentiles as I can. Now, Now, speaking personally, I'm not bugged by that, but here's the problem. The word translated as obligation by the ESV was the same word that's used in Romans 13 verse 8. You see that? So in the New Revised Standard Version, it translates it literally. It says, I am a debtor both to Greeks and barbarians. So Paul thinks that the motivation for preaching the gospel is that he is in debt to people he has never met before. And then, as if that's not enough, He said, not only am I in debt, so also are the rest of us. In Romans 13, verse 8, he says we're in debt to each other. So here's the question. How did I get in debt in the first place? Now, from my way of thinking, the answer to that question has nothing to do with whether or not they gave me something. You know, I may have asked my neighbor to watch my house while I was on vacation, but they asked the same of me, and that never constituted a debt. You see, most of us don't get it. So how are we to understand this? Here's what I think. The debt that I owe is to God, but I can't pay him back. And so all I owe to him is a life of never-ending thankfulness. But then I realize that I have a debt to my neighbor. Now, like any debt, if I don't pay it, I lose what it purchased. Let me put it this way. You know, if I own a great car, it's very precious to me, I'll pay all the debt that remains. But if I think the car is not that great, the debt's too high, I might simply give the car up. I mean, who needs the indebtedness? My willingness to pay is my estimation of the value I have received. And so it is with Paul's evangelism and with the call to love my neighbor. If I don't repay the debt, I make the claim that my salvation is of little value. Suddenly, it all gets very serious. So how is it that I am to repay a debt to my neighbor. Stay tuned. We have so much more to say about that. Back to the Bible Canada is dedicated to the clear presentation of God's good news. The comfort and joy of the gospel are not seasonal. All year round, this ministry carries the power of God's Word, which transforms hearts and homes, always striving to use resources to expand our opportunity to share the gospel and connect with people through an ever-increasing lineup of Bible teaching programming. For this purpose, we rely upon the generosity and partnership of God's people to fulfill this great mission. Your financial gifts are more than kindness. They are a participation in seeding God's Word and a trust in kingdom work. You may be considering a year-end donation for this purpose. In advance, thank you. Placing our gifts into the activity of God will never disappoint. Call us today to make your year-end ministry gift at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca. The difference between the debt of love that I owe to others and a debt that involves money is that, you see, I can pay off a monetary debt, but I will never finish paying off the debt I have to my neighbor. 
Love says the Apostle Paul is the great unpaid debt. Now, all I have done up till now is to set the stage. Paul wants to take this one step further. Look again at verses 8 and 9. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are assumed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now let's think about what Paul says next. The conclusion that he's going to is that we should love our neighbor as ourselves, and some of us have misunderstood this because we've never heard a proper teaching around this statement. We have heard it said that in order to love others, we have to love ourselves. We've also heard that the only reason we don't love others is because we haven't properly loved ourselves. And some of us are so enamored with that kind of thinking, we've actually begun to believe that that idea is found in the Bible. But the Bible, in fact, says the opposite. It says you should love your neighbor in the exact same way as you already love yourself. You see, Paul isn't promoting self-love. He's assuming self-love. Every day, we clothe ourselves and feed ourselves. Why do we do that? We do that because we love ourselves. But even while I clothe myself, I've not been clothing my neighbor. And so I find that I don't love my neighbor as myself at all. But here's where I run into problems. I can't clothe and feed all the people there and And I've been told I have a debt to love people, but that seems impossible. I mean, after all, no one can love that way. But here again, Paul helps us by getting practical. Lest we think this command is undoable, he tells us that the kind of love he has in mind is a fulfillment of the law. So he says, love is the mandate of the law. Or he could have said, love is the intention of the law, or love is the actualization of the law, or that The law was really pointing us into a direction, and that direction was the direction of love. It means once we've been redeemed by Christ, the law becomes for us a way in which we recognize genuine love over against, let's say, you know, sentimental feelings or or hormones or or self-delusion or some other thing. So let's ask a very practical question. How does the law teach us about love? What do I learn about love from the law? Well, let's start with the following statement. The law doesn't give us the power to love. Actually, only the gospel can do that. But the law sows in our hearts a picture of what love looks like. Now, since Paul is speaking about love for neighbor and not for God, would you notice from our passage that he quotes from the second table of the law? See, the Ten Commandments, as many of you know, can be divided into two halves. The first four commands teach us how to love God, and the last six teach us how to love our neighbor. And so, for instance, if you break the seventh command and you commit adultery, you have shown contempt for your neighbor. First, your wife or your husband is your neighbor, and you've already inflicted damage on them. Then your children and your family are your neighbor, and you've harmed them. Also, you did a great harm to the spouse of the one with whom you committed adultery. See, adultery is a cavalier attitude of contempt for many. Then Paul moves to the sixth command, you shall not murder. Well, that that seems obvious. Next to the eighth command, against stealing, again, the implication is obvious. And then he moves to the tenth command, against coveting. 
Now, even if that may seem less than obvious, I promise to come back to that in just a while. But, but please notice, in case you missed it, Paul sums up the entire law as neighbor love. What seems to us as negative as a series of you shall nots is actually intended for positive outcomes. Love your neighbor. So if I look at the four commands that Paul quotes in this passage here in Romans, and if I keep those four commands, what positive outcomes might I expect? While the seventh command might inspire me to want to protect and enhance my neighbor's marriage. The sixth, not to murder, might mean on the positive side that I would seek to care about my neighbor's life, the way the Good Samaritan did. That is, if my neighbor is being threatened or harmed or is in danger in some way, I will take action to protect my neighbor. And the eighth command might make me want to protect his property. And the tenth, that's the command not to envy my neighbor's property. Well, that might inspire me to be delighted when my neighbor does well. See, that's what I would want for myself. I would want my marriage to prosper. I would want to be safe. I would want my property protected. And I would want others to rejoice when I get a raise. And so if I love my neighbor as myself, that's the kind of thing that I'm willing to do for my neighbor. That means I really am my brother and my sister's keeper. Well, let's go to verse 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. You know, there are grammarians who point out that the first half of verse 10 is a figure of speech called a litotes. Now, that's a negative expression, but what's actually implied is something quite positive. And so, for example, let's say you're talking about someone you know, and you say of that person, well, that person is no one's fool. What you really meant is that person is extremely wise. See, to put it in a negative, that's called a litotes. So when Paul says love does no harm to his neighbor, he's actually meaning to say love greatly benefits his neighbor. See, he doesn't mean that love doesn't burn down his neighbor's house. I mean, he does mean that, but he means that love strengthens the neighbor's house. Do you see that? It's a litotes. So the debt of love I have to my neighbor means that I'm looking for ways to bless my neighbor. Now, when we say that, now, if we listen closely, we can almost hear the words of Jesus saying, you are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. But let's see if we can get practical. First, love notices our neighbors. You know, sometimes you and I have to open our eyes to the plight of those around us who are hurting and needy. I think we have to begin to do that among God's people, but we also have to do it in the world. Sometimes that happens in the smallest of ways. You know, I was at my bank machine the other day, and I was about to put my card in the automatic teller machine, and I noticed that the screen looked different. Instead of the usual invitation for me to put my card into the slot, it said, do you want another transaction? Well, in an instant, I realized what I was looking at. Someone had forgotten his or her card inside the machine. They had either taken money out or put money in or something like that, and then, in a hurry, moved on without noticing what they hadn't done. In an instant, I realized that this person had become my neighbor. You see, an unethical person would have come by and seen that and pushed the button and said, you bet, I want another transaction, and then cleaned out that person's account. But I had a debt to that neighbor, a debt I was required to pay. And so I just pushed the button that said, no, I didn't want any more transactions, and out popped their card. And I went into the long line up in the bank, and I got to the teller, and I 
paid my debt to that neighbor and delivered the bank card to the teller. After all, that's what I would have wanted someone to have done for me. That's such a small action. It's a very little effort that was required, but for that moment, that person had crossed into my pathway and had become my neighbor. Someone who was looking out for him or her. Someone who in their moment of need wanted to make sure that they weren't harmed, but rather that they were blessed. But sometimes our response to our neighbor begins to take a much more sacrificial and costly approach. Sometimes it means volunteering for the soup kitchen or volunteering with refugees, but it always means that our eyes are open to the needs of others. Ultimately, the greatest need of anyone is that they come to know Christ as Savior and Lord. And blessing our neighbors means that we are ready to share our faith and put it into practice in front of them. You see, because once I realize that I am my brother's keeper and that my neighbor is not a nuisance or a loser or an inconvenience, once I realize that I have an unpaid debt, well, I come to realize the very heart of the mandate that God has given me. Everyone should know the presence of Christians in any community means that the community is being benefited because of the love of the believers there. That is the heart of the Christian lifestyle. John, I have to ask you a, a serious question today, and it really has to do with sometimes how we overlook the pain and the suffering of others uh, for our own benefit, or we don't need to or want to get involved, or we're trying to protect other people. Uh, what ought our commitment be to those that are being hurt and abused? Yeah, Jesus, I remember, has said that if you harm one of these children, it'd be better for you never to have been born. Uh, there are these, this language in the Scripture, the least of these, my brethren. I think it is a mark of the Christian faith to care about those who are wounded and who have very little power. It's very easy to institutionalize our power in the church so that we defend ourselves rather than defending those who have been wounded. And that sometimes happens in the wider church community where, you know, the wounded continue to be there and their wounds are unaddressed so that we can continue to defend those who have power. So these are things that Christ calls us to address, and ultimately the question of the debt of love gets addressed in those kind of questions. Thanks, John. And join us again tomorrow as we continue this series in the book of Romans, the lifestyle of the gospel right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. You may think that estate planning is only for the wealthy, but decisions about your home, family, your retirement, or even how you'd like to see your money used for ministry and for the kingdom, well, that's important. Back to the Bible Canada has partnered with Advisors with Purpose to help you start and discuss those important decisions. Their trained estate specialists are available to meet you by phone and provide you with the information to make the best decisions possible for you and your family. It's never too early to plan for your future, so call them today. To speak to an estate specialist today, call 1-866-336-3315. That's 1-866-336-3315. Or visit advisorswithpurpose.ca for your free and confidential 
Consult.